Hello and welcome to the Samungos podcast. This is episode 45 and part two of our COVID-19 series. Now we're putting these two episodes out close together because of the evolving nature of the disease and how much the information is changing day to day. Please note that this was recorded on February the 20th, so already some of this information may be outdated. For all the latest updates, we put some websites in our show notes for you to check out. But let's just jump right in. Um, anything, I presume treatment is standard ABCD approach, oxygen if they need it, all the usual stuff. Um, anything specifically we need to know about treatments, any treatments on the horizon or, or what What can you say about that? So there's no good evidence for any treatments. We know it doesn't work. We know that steroids don't work. Uh, they don't seem to alter outcome and there's some ge- suggestion from SARS that they may actually worsen outcome. So steroids are a, are a no unless there's an alternative indication for them. Um we know that this virus uses the ACE2 receptor in order to gain entry into respiratory cells and therefore there's some suggestion that ACE inhibitors may have a therapeutic uh, role here. I'm, I'm sure they are being used in, in China. There's also some suggestion there's some in vitro data for one of our antiretroviral drugs that we use for HIV management, lapinavir ritonavir which I'm sure is also being trialled. And then there's a, there's a drug that was actually... Um, developed for for treatment of Ebola, it's um, remdesivir, which would appear to have some in vitro and possibly some animal model data to suggest that it has activity against coronaviruses. So these things are all experimental at the minute. Can I ask about China in terms of, I mean, how open are they being? They're not being open with, I guess, statistics, but are they being open with the outcomes of these experiments, these tests, these new dr- drugs, or, or how, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know is the answer. I I'm, I know that um, certainly remdesivir has uh, is is made by Gilead, an American uh, pharma company, and I know that they have given some of their stocks to the Chinese for treatment. I I'm sure that that is done under the auspices of a clinical trial, and therefore, you know, will produce data. I'm, I'm not sure about anything else really I think it's difficult to know and I think I, I think the whole situation is is evolving and um, to be fair to the Chinese it's it's a massive population of, of people potentially at risk it must be very challenging to get so obviously data. we don't yeah sorry obviously we don't have a lot of cases here in the UK but is there any kind of laboratory testing going on anything that we're doing our scientists are doing kind of looking at treatments or otherwise um not that I'm aware of beyond uh, beyond those drugs that I've mentioned, I, I don't even know if those drugs have been used, you know, in the cases that we've had. I'm not party to that information. So if, say, we did get a case here in the UK, a positive case, a sick case, what, what would your treatment be? Would, would you be able to use any of those ones that you've mentioned? Are they accessible to you or, or how would you... So, so they, I think th- th- there's a number of questions about whether someone would need treatment that, the anticipation is that the majority of people are actually going to be very well and probably don't need anything more than supportive care um, and are probably at present going to land up in hospital largely to isolate them and for kind of public health reasons as much as anything else. We know that when people develop respiratory failure, and again, this is from two sizable cohorts, the average time from diagnosis in hospital to developing respiratory failure is about 7.9 days, somewhere between 7 to 10 days. So if someone's going to develop respiratory failure, we're going to know about it. 
and therefore we should be able to predict it and therefore come up with management plans to do that. Where these different drugs fit into that into that kind of disease process, I think, is is largely unknown and I'm sure will form part of um, clinical trials. I know that there are, you know, plans afoot for clinical trials in the UK, as I'm sure there are in pretty much every European country, um, should we start to get cases at the severe end. So let's go back to our patient in emergency who is, say, a high-risk patient. How do we test and then what do we do pending that test? Do we keep them in that one place until the test result is back? Or how would you how would you approach that? So the way that we test is a nose and throat swab. So upper respiratory tract samples, a nose swab, really going as far back as you can. It's obviously not a particularly pleasant thing to have done in a throat swab from the tonsillar bed. And if you can get it, sputum. I would suggest about half the people that I've seen have actually been able to produce sputum. Most people have a very dry cough. We know that that test is very sensitive. We know that the, the current nucleic acid testing is very good at picking up virus and will detect virus down to quite low levels. So negative is, is negative. I think if you've got someone who fits the case definition, who is sitting in your emergency department, and you're waiting on a test result, which isn't going to be there until the next day, the first thing is, well, do they need to be in hospital? If they don't need to be in hospital, there is no reason that they can't go home and self-isolate at home. The logistical challenge there is getting them home. So if they've driven up in their own car and they can drive themselves home, then that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. The reality is that once you've made that identification of that person being a possible case they can't use public transport uh, they're not supposed to walk home or anything so the reality is that often we do end up admitting patients pending results the patient needs admitted ideally to a negative pressure room if you have such a thing if you don't they should be admitted to a single side room that has an ensuite toilet and obviously all healthcare interactions with the patient are done using personal protective equipment. And then there could potentially be the sicker patient, quite unwell, respiratory failure. Um, presumably we'll have to get ICU involved. They will probably have uh, negative pressure rooms. Anything you want to say about the sicker patients and, and what ICU maybe need to think about? Yeah, I think, I think we have to look at the natural history of this illness and it would appear that, as I said earlier, we can predict with several days when someone is going to require respiratory support. So this is this is another way where it differs from flu. Influenza patients can pitch up to ED in extremis with respiratory failure and go off to ITU straight away. That's less likely with this because there's such a high level of public suspicion about it. And we know that it's going to be a week after you've presented for the majority of people before they develop significant lung injury, which requires them to be ventilated. So I think the important thing for intensivists is to think about how they would manage someone. And I think there needs to be a very proactive kind of approach to these patients. They should have a diagnosis. We should know about them. Patients who, who've, in whom you've diagnosed COVID-19, who are developing respiratory problems, oxygen demands going up, all the rest of it, probably needs to be very kind of early and proactive discussions about how you're going to manage that um, and thoughts about probably 
earlier intubation rather than high flow oxygen and these sort of things. I'm not an intensivist. I have no right to tell them how to manage these things, but I think that there should be a proactivity about it and it's a discussion that needs to be had. And just for my own uh, understanding, what, what what is the cause of the respiratory failure? What, what's happening at the, at the cellular level? So it appears to be kind of interstitial lung damage. So, so um, it would appear that you get the infection you get these kind of bilateral inflammatory changes that you see on on imaging and then you just kind of develop progressive kind of lung damage i guess probably a kind of ards type of type of picture um and and we think that's why it happens you know so far down the line after after diagnosis so say we do get a positive case, who who do we contact? Because obviously there'll need to be kind of source and contacts. And, and is there a, a number we call or, or who sets that ball in motion? So if we get a positive case, um, if you have someone who you get phoned back a result to say it's positive, which shouldn't really happen, um, there's a number of people that need to be involved. Public health need to be involved, infectious diseases, your local infection control teams, um, a whole variety of people need to be involved. And when we have these patients, you'll probably find someone will set up a, a kind of instant management team, usually under the auspices of public health, who will coordinate all of these different strands. So we'll coordinate that individual patient's management uh, chasing up of contacts and testing if needs be of contacts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it's a huge amount when you have someone with a high consequence infectious disease. You, you'll you'll find a big incident management team up and running who will try and coordinate all of that. And as a clinician, that is very important because you, when you have one of these patients to look after, they're very intensive in terms of your time. And what you don't have is a lot of time to sit and coordinate everything else. You need to devote your time to looking after the patient. So the patient leaves the department. What happens to the room? Is it just a standard deep clean? Yeah, it's a standard clean. Um, Chlorine-based cleaners. Um, yeah, we, we're just kind of washing down with um, with with essentially bleach, um, Actichlor, um, washing down hard surfaces. The room gets a standard deep clean that you would do then else. Clearly the cleaner needs to wear appropriate PPE when they are when they are cleaning the room. Um, but yeah, it's a standard clean and then the room is good to go again. This is just a theoretical question. Um, say we, maybe there was a language barrier at the beginning. Maybe there was a, one of our uh, staff were in really close contact with the patient, maybe in triage. And then two hours later, a positive test comes back and that, uh, staff members worried because they got coughed on or they were really close to the patient right at the beginning before we knew. What advice would you give? Would you send that patient home and isolate for a while or would you uh, carry on, see if the symptoms develop? Or is there, I, I know there's probably not a great answer to that. So it's very Douglas Adams, don't panic. Um, <laughs> if you do catch this, you're probably going to be okay, uh, which will be of, of variable reassurance to people. It's one of the things that an incident management team would take up. They would take on the management of any staff exposed. The, the current guidance is that that staff member is is likely to go home and self-isolate at home for 14 days. And then if they develop any symptoms, get tested. Um, and, but that's the sort of thing that, 
the team would take on. And I, I didn't ask you this at the beginning, I should have done, what's the kind of standard sort of incubation period of this from, do we know from the point of being yeah, in contact to developing we, symptoms? We know the average is about five to six days um, is the average time, but it has been up to 14 days, hence the UK guidance that I described earlier. But five to six days is the average. And are you presumably only contagious when you are sneezing, coughing? Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a couple of case reports of asymptomatic individuals um, being the source of infections, um, a couple in Europe. These have largely now, people have gone back and actually discovered that the source almost certainly did have symptoms, at least were medicating for symptoms prior to that. So I think the concern about asymptomatic spread is less than it was. But clearly, as I said before, we don't know a huge amount about the very mild end of the illness yet. Um, so we can't say that with any certainty, but it would appear to be people who have symptoms that are infectious. Okay, thank you very much. I was going to ask just for your general opinion on the whole broad case. I know that's a very difficult thing. What I mean by that is clearly there's a relative amount of hysteria. What does someone with your expertise, what you know, what 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 is your take? Is this has this been a justified response? Have we been a bit overkill with the response, or is that overkill proving to be effective? Is this is this what we need to do in future if we get a a, a potential case? We need to be vigilant and very strict. And um, what, what what's your kind of general take on the whole thing so far? I think it's very difficult to strike a path between overreaction and underreaction. So that's probably the first thing to say. I think we have probably overreacted in the UK. But I don't mean that as criticism, because that may actually, in time, prove to be the correct approach. I think that that reaction with a very broad case definition is challenging. As a, as a clinician who, who looks after patients with infection, and in particular looks after patients who return from travel, with illness um, and I think that's one of the challenges that come with an overreaction I understand the reasons for that to try and delay or hopefully prevent it circulating in our population having said that I'd be very surprised if we are able to prevent it circulating in our population I think this virus has a lot of the attributes that make it a very good candidate for pandemic spread. It causes mild illness. It's got, you know, a high number of individuals infected for every one infected. Um, it's respiratory spread. So there's lots of things about this that would suggest it will transmit throughout the population. There's a lot of projections. Um, some projections suggesting that we are probably going to face a pandemic of this and that it may have a healthcare effect similar to the kind of flu pandemics of the 1950s, perhaps at, at that sort of level. Um, and I think, I think that's going to be challenging for our healthcare systems, um, not least from just a, a kind of weight of numbers of, of people who, who may become unwell. Um, I still think that the individuals who who are likely to succumb to this will be people with significant comorbidity. And again, that is something we see every year with seasonal respiratory infection, but those numbers will be amplified 
by the nature of a pandemic, there are some suggestions that, you know, upwards of 60% of the population may ultimately become infected and then this will just become one of our circulating seasonal respiratory viruses. I think all of that remains to be seen. But I think everything about this virus would suggest that it has the potential to do that. So do you think we're prepared for a, a potential pandemic? Um, I, I do recall earlier in the podcast, you mentioned that the current advice is if someone is a positive test, they should be isolated, even potentially in hospital. Could we cope? Do we have the numbers? Do we have en enough negative pressure rooms? Do we have enough wards that could cope? Is that why China built several hospitals? Is, is How do you see that progressing or, or panning out? Oh, to be able to build a hospital in, in short period of time. Um, I think the, the, the current state that we're at about trying to prevent transmission, I think we have the facilities to do that as we are. I think there will come a point where we probably do get higher rates in the population and then clearly that approach becomes unsustainable. And I would imagine that we would then move to a state where people who are positive, who are actually quite well, self-isolate at home and the only people admitted to hospital are those that actually require secondary care um, kind of treatment in order to keep them well and and I think the point at which we switch over to that approach will clearly be a, a kind of function of numbers. So I think what you're kind of describing is we will go back to a kind of how we manage flu. Is that right? So stay at home, treat it at home pretty much unless yeah, you're very yeah. sick, come to hospital. But we tend not to get overly wor overly worried about flu. Again, I guess we've just got used to it or accepted and we've got some treatments for it, I guess. But anything you'd like to say on that? Yeah, so I think flu is a major issue every year. Um, and, and I don't think we're very good at communicating that to the general public. And I think the advice, I think you're spot on. I think we'll probably reach a point where the advice that we give for this is exactly the same as we have with flu. The key difference of flu is that we have interventions. And we have, you know, I would argue well-evidenced interventions. I would argue that the evidence for neuraminidase inhibitors like oseltamivir and zanamivir in terms of reducing length of stay in hospital and reducing need for critical care is relatively good, that evidence. And we know that vaccination, yep, okay, it might not be hugely successful in preventing you from catching the illness, but the evidence that it reduces your need for hospital admission, it reduces your need to end up in ICU or it reduces your mortality, that's why we give flu vaccine. So, so we have very good interventions. I guess we don't have that with COVID and that is what is what is going to lead to concern. And we're familiar with flu. As doctors, as nurses, as the public, we have a perception of what influenza is and what it does to you and the, and the kind of natural history of, of that illness. And I guess with something new like a coronavirus such as COVID-19, we haven't got that familiarity. And that breeds concern. And that's understandable. Just taking the treatments, for example, um, why are standard antivirals not? What what structurally is different about COVID nineteen that it doesn't respond to the, the standard? Treatments? So, so it doesn't use neuraminidase in the same way that influenza does. So, inhibiting that enzyme doesn't do anything. Um, we don't have kind of broad spectrum antivirals, if you like. the The antiviral medication that we have tends to be very targeted to specific uh, specific viruses. Although, as I've already said. 
there is interest in using drugs that were developed to treat HIV, drugs that were used to develop, um, were developed to, to treat Ebola, um, and these may have some cross-activity against viral infections. There's clearly not been the same drive to develop therapeutic agents against the viruses that cause seasonal respiratory infection because they're self-limiting illnesses and, you know... There's no market for these things. Is the drive for treatments, does it tend to be quite coordinated globally? Or is it quite like all companies are just driven to get there first and it's not very coordinated? And, and, and how long do you expect it to be until we have a vaccine or a decent treatment? So the science of this is quite phenomenal. You know, within two weeks of the first real description of this cluster, someone had identified that this was a coronavirus and they had the sequence for it. And within a few weeks of that, we had a test. So, and that's a global, that is global cooperation in action. Uh, and that is, that's really quite phenomenal science. Um, so, so that there's a lot of cooperation, a lot of cooperation, but clearly drug companies and vaccine manufacturers are kind of businesses. They are, you know, they're, they're there to, to make money and they make no bones about that. So so clearly there will be a rush to to produce agents. We saw it with Ebola, you know, when you had the huge West African Ebola outbreak. That really drove the development of, of therapeutic agents for an illness which nobody had bothered to develop anything for for a long, long time. You can be cynical about it and suggest that's because it started to threaten rich Western economies and therefore provided a drive and thereby a market for, for drug companies to produce to produce drugs. And that's something we see with a lot of kind of tropical infection. In terms of a vaccine, I know there's several people actively trying to develop vaccines. I think the kind of estimate is probably about 18 months, but who knows how, you know, how these things will actually pan out in terms of trials and, and what have you. But because you've identified the genetic sequence, because you've got identified the virus, then that allows people really very early to get on and, and produce vaccines. Anything you want to say about any other types of viruses or, or any other pathogens that, that you know, what, what, what does the future hold? I guess we kind of like a bit of sensationalism, don't we? I mean, <laughs> there's, there's always a good movie or yeah. Netflix has a new documentary and... You know, and, and they started off as very sensational, but quite interesting. You know, they were saying, talking about the, the the flu pandemic, you know, after the Second World War killed tens of millions of people. And they says, but back then we didn't have air travel or a lot less of it. You know, we didn't have, you know, f f you know, factory farming. We didn't have. So we're kind of anticipating that, that there will be our, our lifestyles are maybe ripe for generating more are, are you that worried are you do you think things we need to be very vigilant do we need to change our habits do we need what, what 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 how do you look to the future humans are not at the top of a food chain we're somewhere in the middle and humans need to accept that and a lot of people have difficulty accepting that as an id physician that's what i see people say to me what's the most infectious the most scary thing that you look after the answer is flu influenza possibly tb is a close second um and these are things that have been around for a long long time and have not gone away so 
you have to see something like this in that context. I think what we are witnessing just now is a natural occurrence, i.e. the move of a viral agent present in bats, another mammal, jumping species over to humans, is something that has probably happened for eons, but we now have the technology to identify these viruses and phylogenetically see where they've come from and all of these things. We have global news, we have social media, we have the ability to transmit the kind of information about this across the world very, very quickly. So what we're actually doing now is documenting a natural phenomenon and probably for the first time in human history are able to do that with some certainty. So so there is the fact that we can actually see it happening, but it's something that's probably happened before. It'll have happened with flu, it's happened with a whole host of different agents and it will continue to happen as long as we're on this planet. And I guess, but conversely, we travel more, so we can spread this a lot more. Is that fair to say? And 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 secondary to that, do you think the response, I mean, this is very hard, you know, I guess if it doesn't amount to much, we'll look back and go, oh, it was all overkill. But has the response been successful? Is this the new norm? Do we need to shut down global travel when these events happen? Do we need to just accept that this is something that has to occur to prevent these huge pandemics? It's a great question. And, and, and I think there are many kind of aspects to the answer to that. First of all, if this is an overreaction and we've gone through all of this and it doesn't amount to anything, then nothing has been lost because what we have developed and reinforced are systems that allow us to deal with the next thing that comes along. So for example, a lot of the kind of policies that we have used to manage this are actually the policies that we'd already developed for MERS um, and we then adapt to this. The policies that we had for MERS were policies that we developed for SARS and then developed for, you know. So, so actually going through these in terms of getting your healthcare systems up to speed is a good thing, even if this doesn't come to anything. It's important that these things happen. Yes, we have global travel and yes, you can move a virus from halfway around the world within... 18 hours or whatever, very easily. Um, so it increases the risk for for pandemic spread. You mentioned 1918 flu, the Spanish flu. You know, there's no doubt that the huge movement of peoples after the First World War was one of the factors that, that led to, to that pandemic, that pandemic spread. So we know that mass movements of people um, increase these pandemics. We can go all the way back. You can go back to the um, Spanish um, conquests in South America. And, you know, one of the reasons that they were able to uh, conquer the Americas was probably because of influenza. They transmitted influenza, a European illness, to a whole population who'd never met it before and just the pandemic. And, uh, you know, and, and, and conquered the Americas as a result. So we know this. We know that this is the way, this is what happens. And this is going to continue to happen. And if it's not this, it will be something else. Any, just for my own kind of um, knowledge, any other 
pathogens I mightn't even have heard of. Anything else kind of looming on the horizon or, or is it a case of things might just pop up that we've just never heard of before? So there's a whole variety of things out there. What do we think about? I guess in the context of this, the other thing that we've had to think about is H5N1. So avian influenza, same part of the world. And we've had a couple of patients who've been referred to us as query coronavirus, but actually have significant risk for avian influenza, which they've not had, but you know, um, so we we still worry about that because it's it's a it's a, a virus that has really quite significant mortality in relation to our current circulating influenza viruses. Um, there's a whole variety of viral hemorrhagic fevers which we're always worrying about in returning travellers with febrile illness, particularly from Africa, but probably from other parts of the world as well. Um, so we're always kind of conscious of these things. I've mentioned MERS in in the Middle East. Um, it's a you know huge issue, uh, not so much because of the illness, but the concerns that that come around that. And then there are lots of different viruses that circulate around the world, which and certainly in the UK we don't see much of, but other places you know other places will. But we're always thinking about these things in travellers. Anything you do as an infectious disease consultant that you would recommend everyone do? I bet you wash your hands more than most people do, <laughs> or cook your meat a little bit longer, or yeah, um, yeah, wash my hands. Try not to get too paranoid. Yeah, just and live your life and, and don't, don't panic too much. Yeah, and I think and I think that's challenging. You know, I, I always say that there's nothing about me that makes me. You know, my skin is not naturally impervious to these pathogens. I don't get paid danger money. You know. I guess what I do is accept that that what I do carries an element of risk with it and I take precautions to minimise that risk. But exactly the same as you do in ED, you know, you know, managing multiple trauma or when you're out and about at trauma in the middle of a motorway or something, it's it's what comes, you know, it's it's no different to no different to anybody else. So, Dr. McConaughey, thank you very, very much. That was absolutely fabulous. Um, I'm going to end with one final question, if that's okay, and I ask everyone the same question. Um, I bring you back on, on a time machine to meet your junior self, just leaving medical school, about <laughs> to start your career. What have you gained in all of your experience so far that you would pass on to them starting their career? Um, I, it's a good question. I, I guess for me, it would be stay inquisitive. Just keep asking why. Keep wondering why. Why this? Why this? Um, why has this happened? Um, yeah, I think I think the day that you lose your inquisitive nature is is probably when when the job becomes a bit less exciting. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. So many, many thanks to Dr. Alistair McConaughey. I think my main take-home points from this episode are number one: there are currently no definite treatments, but we know that steroids don't work and there are some potential treatments being tested, such as ACE inhibitors, lipinavir, ritonavir, and remdesivir. Number two, with regards to testing, ideally take a nose swab from as far back in the nasal cavity as you can, and a throat swab from the tonsillar bed, and ideally a sputum sample if you can get it. Number three, in terms of positive cases, there will be an incident management team set up, which will include representatives from public health, infectious diseases, and local infection control teams. And if any staff has been exposed without PPE, then the current advice is to self-isolate at home for 14 days, getting tested if symptomatic. Number four, the average incubation period is five to six days, but can be up to 14, hence the current advice. 
but there's a lot we don't know and that advice is changing all the time. Number five, a pandemic is highly likely because of the attributes of the virus and it's possible that up to 60% of the population will be affected. And those attributes are it has a mild form of the illness so can go undetected, it has a high contagious risk and it is respiratory spread. We currently have the capacity to prevent spread but when the rates rise in the population it will likely be that well cases will be managed at home and hospitalisation reserved for sicker patients. And number six, a few final comments from Alistair. Influenza is still for him the pathogen he fears the most, so get your vaccines each year. And also remember to wash your hands well and try not to get too paranoid. So just one final reminder that this was recorded on the 20th of February and the information and advice is changing all the time. So please check the updates. There are some websites in our show notes that will keep you updated on all the latest information. Many, many thanks to Dr. Alistair McConaughey again for his time. Many, many thanks to you for listening. Please check out stmungos-ed.com for the show notes as well as other resources for your enjoyment. And until next time, wash your hands and don't get too paranoid.